Welcome to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Ashley Elfervik from ABA Publishing, and I'll be today's host. In this episode, I speak with Kenneth Emo, the author of Fix It, How History, Sports, and Education Can Inform Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity Today. Kenneth led diversity efforts for two international law firms and is a member of Capital One's Diversity and Inclusion Leadership Team. His new book discusses Harriet Tubman, Jackie Robinson, and how their examples can inspire real change in law firms today. Kenneth, welcome to the show. Ashley, thanks for having me. So I love that you start your book off with a little known but very impactful fact about Harriet Tubman. Um, Would you mind sharing this somewhat unknown part of history with our listeners? Sure, I'm happy to. So, you know, when I wrote the book, I wanted to write about things that I find interesting. And so I majored in history and economics uh, in undergrad, and I went to law school. So I'm a lawyer, and I was in the Air Force for some time. So I'm a veteran. I also played football in college. So I have an interest in history, sports, the law, just, you know, lots of, lots of things. And as I set out to write this book, I, I literally sort of held myself out as a sponge just to hear about lots of interesting things going on in the world at the time and just in history. So as I was listening to something on NPR a few years ago, I heard a reference to uh, this organization called Kumbahi. It had Kumbahi in the title. And I was sort of half listening to the, the program on the radio, but that word just stayed with me, Kumbahi. So I, I quickly did a Google search and found out about uh, a war effort in South Carolina called the Cumbahee River Raid that Harriet Tubman led. And like most folks, what I knew about Harriet Tubman was that she was the conductor of the Underground Railroad, that she was an abolitionist. I didn't know that she actually contributed to the Civil War effort as a leader of men. So I thought, wow, this is, this is a fascinating story. So as I did some research, found out a little more, I learned that when the Union officers started to plan their campaign in South Carolina, they needed to accomplish a couple of things. One, they needed to cut off access to some of the plantations that were major feeders to the Confederate soldiers down there for supply lines. Two, They needed someone who knew how to navigate the terrain in South Carolina because a lot of these folks were coming down from the north and they were unfamiliar with the territory. And three, they needed someone who could convince enslaved African-American people uh, who, once freed, would be willing to support the Union efforts to wage a decisive campaign in, in South Carolina. And all this happened along the Combahee River down there. And Harriet Tubman was just the person they needed. This diminutive, formerly enslaved African-American woman was the person who Union soldiers, white Union male soldiers identified as the person to help them. Now, I found this, I found this fascinating because this was at a time when slavery was legal in the South. And women couldn't vote. And so uh, union officers called upon an African-American woman to support them with, in the war effort. And she exceeded beyond expectations as a leader of men and essentially as a scout, as a spy, 
funneling information back to union soldiers to help them determine how best to wage this campaign uh, in South Carolina. It's a fascinating story, but for me, it also sort of brings home the message of why diversity and inclusion is important. Because if you ask someone, what would you envision a leader of men to look like? Someone who fits the description of Harriet Tubman wouldn't instantly come to mind. So what this story drives home is that when we are willing to give people opportunities that don't necessarily correlate with how we may see them, how people may see uh, one another, that just goes to show the power of diversity and inclusion. When we you know, get beyond some of the biases or preconceived notions of what uh, a leader looks like, for example, or what a law firm partner looks like, we have a broader view of who should be in these roles. For me, that really speaks to the why, sort of the power behind diversity and inclusion, and that is recognizing that uh, the playing field hasn't always been level. And what can we do to ensure that people have equal access to opportunity so they can actually contribute in ways that benefit themselves and benefit their organizations generally? Definitely. And thank you for sharing that. You know, like you said, definitely something you don't picture immediately with Harriet Tubman, but such a awesome, you know, fact of history that she contributed that way. So you also talk, like you said, about history and sports. Um, you talk about how the general manager of the Dodgers, Branch Rickey, uh, had the empathy and the wisdom to really help break baseball's color barrier. So recently, the Chicago Cubs president, Theo Epstein, spoke on diversity in light of some horrible remarks made by the owner of the team in his emails. Epstein has committed the team to action and said that diversity is important everywhere, not just because it's the most important thing to do, but it helps you win. If you're not diverse, you don't have the benefit of different backgrounds, different histories, different perspectives, which is what you need collectively to get the right answer. What are your thoughts on this, and how do you think Epstein can use this incident to incite social change? Yeah, I just recently found out about this situation, and I find it interesting for a couple of reasons. One, the big obvious thing is that the owner of the Chicago Cubs is Epstein's boss. And so Epstein's in a very interesting position in condemning the actions of his boss, while at the same time also now being in a position to promote change. And so what I find interesting about this, too, the other thing is that I agree with the statement that Epstein made. He's absolutely right about the benefits of diversity and about the benefits of sports and that you know, for three and a half hours, people can go to a baseball game and literally sort of disconnect from the world and watch their heroes on the field perform at the highest level. But I think what we've seen in society generally over the past two years is that the line between sports, politics, and let's just put it out there, intolerance have been blurred quite a bit. And so when we start to see a lot of change take place, I think it's when the, the athletes t start to take a stand. Epstein, you know, in the spirit of Branch Rickey, 
you know, is in a very unique position in that he obviously has a voice as a person of influence and authority within that organization. And it's one thing for him to issue a statement, but it's another thing to see what actions follow after he made this statement. A lot of this makes me think about what happened with the Los Angeles Clippers a few years ago when their owner, Donald Sterling, made some very divisive remarks and he was eventually, uh, he eventually had to sell the Clippers basketball franchise as a result of it. And what we saw in that instance were the players on that team protested and it happened during the playoffs, uh, National Basketball Association playoffs. And there was some thought that uh, maybe the Clippers wouldn't play and win the playoff games. And so when things start to affect uh, an owner's bottom line, affect their money, essentially, that's when you start to see people take notice. So I'm curious to see how things play out with this situation. What was interesting with the integration of Major League Baseball is that Branch Rickey knew what he was up against, and he essentially played, uh, he was very strategic and played the long game. And so as I write about in the book, he wanted to integrate baseball, but he knew that he couldn't do it early on in his career in St. Louis because it was a, it was a less tolerant environment in the 1930s and 40s. And so he had to wait until he became the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers and a more tolerant environment, a more diverse environment in New York City. And he also had to wait for the death of the commissioner of Major League Baseball at the time, whose name was uh, Kennison Mountain Landis, who I write about in the book. And there were a couple other things that worked in Ricky's favor as well. And there were the, there were the passage of anti-discrimination laws in New York at that time. So there were a confluence of, of events and factors, and Ricky sort of timed everything. He didn't time it. He was fortuitous in a lot of ways, but he didn't let those factors sort of pass him by. He took advantage of those moments. So it'll be curious to see how things play out right now with the Cubs franchise. And if there's more of a, a groundswell or, or if this controversy lingers a little longer to see what Epstein does. Because like I said, I totally agree with this statement, but we'll be curious to see how things play out because if fans start to protest or players start to boycott then it's a very different situation. And it goes from something that was said by the owner or done with some of the uh, racist emails uh, and jokes that he made and then was ultimately condemned by Epstein to some real actions that have to play out there. So I'm curious to see how this unfolds over time. Definitely. And, um, you know, especially something to think about too, just it was such a contrast reading about what you said about Brand Tricky and, and what he and Jackie Robinson had to go through. So, you know, definitely an interesting time for comparisons and, like you said, action. So kind of speaking of bottom lines, I want to talk a little bit about um, scholarships and LSAT scores. So it might surprise some law school hopefuls that LSAT scores have very little correlation to success in law school or success in the legal world. Can you talk a little bit about the research on LSAT scores and how some schools adopt that for a uh, reverse Robin Hood strategy? Yeah. So I found the research for this part of the book interesting because I learned so much about it uh, because I didn't know 
I didn't know the history behind the LSAT. And then I sat down to write about to write the book. I did some research on the LSAT, just sort of thinking through what are some of the barriers to progress that are in place, be it uh, institutional, be it things that we are stuck to from a tradition standpoint. And the LSAT for me is one of those, the, the use of the LSAT is one of those things that for me sort of falls into that category of, uh, of folks being stu- too stuck to tradition and how we've always done things. Because the LSAT, I learned, uh, was created at a time to determine how successful someone would be as a first-year law student. And that was it. And the LSAT was created because there was a time where people, you didn't have to go to law school. You could literally learn the practice of law by training at the heels of a well-seasoned lawyer, and then you take the bar exam, and then you become a lawyer. So they had to create some, some very wise folks decided to create ways to make it a little more challenging to become a lawyer, so they created the LSAT, law schools, etc. And so the LSAT, as I mentioned, was created simply to determine uh, what kind of student someone would be as a first year. And there was initial, initially there was some uh, belief that LSAT performance could also determine uh, how good a law student someone would be. After many years of doing research and looking into this, what researchers found out was that there was very little correlation between how someone performed on the LSAT and how they would perform in law school throughout all three years. And there was hardly any correlation between LSAT scores and performance as a lawyer. But despite that, the LSAT has been used to determine how law schools are ranked. So the higher the uh, median LSAT score is for law firm, for law schools determines that law school's ranking. And it's also used by admissions offices to obviously make decisions on who gets admitted. And it also determines uh, financial aid. And so those students who score the highest on the LSAT tend to get more financial aid than folks who don't. The other thing that's interesting about this is that a lot of folks, a lot of students who do well in the LSAT have resources to LSAT test prep programs. And by having resources to pay for test prep, they do better. And some of the research out there has indicated that folks who take advantage of test prep courses are people who have the means to do so. And so those students who may not have the means aren't taking the test prep and aren't scoring as high. And so what they found is that the students who are doing really well on the LSAT are getting scholarships, and students who are paying full tuition for the LSAT are people who more than likely don't have the means. And law schools uh, get uh, generate a lot of their revenue from tuition. So it's the students who have the least means who are paying full tuition, some of whom are taking out student loans, are the ones who are essentially subsidizing those students who are getting scholarships because they scored better on the LSAT, hence the reverse Robin Hood effect. Fascinating research that was done by a professor out of the uh, St. Louis University School of Law, Professor Aaron Taylor. So what Professor Taylor's research found was that in the years after the Great Recession, 
there was less interest in people going to law school. And so there was a significant decline in uh, law school applications. And some of the schools who are ranked lower, lower tiered schools, found that in order to keep their revenue generating, they uh, started to admit more black and Hispanic law students. And they essentially, the way Professor Taylor tells it, they essentially use diversity as a mechanism to help them generate revenue. And so what he also talked about was that schools, uh, the higher rated schools, higher tier schools, used the post-recession years as a way to sort of cut back on their diversity efforts. And what they start, what they did was they, instead of taking a more robust approach to their admissions processes, a lot of them were focused a lot on LSAT scores. And as a result, their law for law schools were less diverse. So there was less diversity among the top tier law schools and more diversity in the lower tier law schools as a way for those schools to continue to generate revenue. What's significant about that is the research indicates that students graduating from the top tier law schools either go into students who graduate at the top of their class in top tier law schools are the students who make the most money to begin their legal careers because they either get um, jobs at uh, well-paid law firms or very prestigious federal uh, government jobs. And students who graduate from lower tiered schools aren't getting those opportunities at the same rates as students graduating from the higher tiered schools. So there, it creates this sort of stratification of diversity in the legal profession. And it's in the larger law firms where there's been a, a big push for diversity and inclusion for the past decade or more. And so what we had was a situation where the law schools from which big firms recruit were becoming less diverse. These firms were still as committed to diversity as they've always said, but they weren't seeing a lot of progress being made in the representation of people of color in their law firms. And I speak specifically to people of color here, recognizing obviously that that is not the only form of diversity uh, the gender, sexual orientation, uh, people of varying abilities, veteran status, all of that. But in my book, I, I focused a lot on race-related issues because I feel like one of the challenges with the diversity conversation thus far is that we don't talk enough about race. And so one of the things that inspired me to write this book was a lot of what's going on in our country uh, just generally, with a lot of the divisiveness where race has been front and center, and it's forced us to really address these issues head on. And so that's why I talk about race from the standpoint of law school admissions processes, law firm recruiting efforts, and the way law firms train and develop uh, junior lawyers going forward. Definitely. And speaking of law firm recruiting, um, you talk a little bit in the book about how, you know, that university pedigree isn't always the best way to judge how someone's going to perform. And that personality traits like creativity and confidence and composure under pressure are really the better way to gauge that 
job-related performance. And as you said, judging just off that university label can affect the amount of diversity in a firm. So how can firms recruit for personality traits instead of these university labels? Ashley, that's a great question. And it's, it's a great question because it's a tough issue. Um, there's been a lot of work that's gone into, a lot of research that's gone into, what are some of the competencies that determine how successful someone would be in a law firm setting? And look, I'm not discounting pedigree at all because you know, people who have gone to great schools have earned the right to be in those schools and people who've succeeded there work very hard to succeed at those schools. But I do think that in order to be more holistic and take a more holistic and inclusive approach to recruiting generally, I think it's good for folks to think about other things beyond sort of pedigree. So what else in addition to pedigree should we look for in people? And that's where um, the competencies that I talked about, some of those traits I talked about in the book factor into this. The challenge there is that we require law firms to change the recruiting model that they've had in place for years, specifically around how they assess who should gain admission into their law firms, who should join their summer associate programs. But there's also ways to do this that requires firms to be a little more objective in how they assess people beyond their grades and beyond the school that folks attended. And so it's a question of one, identifying what are those key traits or factors that correlate with success. And that's going to require some, a lot of resources and some research for firms to identify what those things are and then determine how best to assess that in their candidates. And it should also relate to what are some of the factors and the traits that firms and competencies that firms see and folks who succeed in their law firms. And again, that's sort of, it's a, it's a different way to approach recruiting and the way people are trained. And essentially what I'm calling for in the book is that we have, that we in the legal profession have been steeped in a 20th century model of doing things that may not be practical in the 21st century. And so why not experiment with some of the latest research out there that provides some examples of things that firms can do differently to tear down what I see as a barrier, and that is uh, this stubborn devotion to tradition. It has worked in the past. It's served its purpose. But it's time to question today as to whether or not it's working now and if we are as committed to having a more diverse and inclusive legal profession law firm in this instance then is tradition serving that purpose? And I think the answer to the question is no. Definitely. And thank you for um, talking about all that. And like you said, there's a lot of new research ongoing. Um, Michelle Obama talked about this issue in her new book, Becoming, and she spoke about her time at Sidley Austin trying to encourage more inclusivity in their recruiting process, you know, kind of including trying to get big law to kind of look beyond those Ivy League schools. So what kind of strategies do you think 
you know, Michelle Obama took on and are there any ones that you have seen implemented in law firms that are a good model to follow? Yeah, I think a lot of firms, you know, over the past 10 years, I think some firms have expanded the schools from which they recruit to include historically black college and universities. So that's one approach. You know, that is happening. I think the other thing to kind of tie back to the, the, the last question you asked me, and that is, you know, what are other ways for firms to use the latest research to identify what those traits or factors are for success? I think if firms are able to figure out what those traits are, which are some of which are addressed in the book based on some, some really good research uh, in this area, then I think you can firms could potentially go deeper into the class at some of the law schools from which they recruit, A. B, they could then broaden the range of schools from which they recruit, recognizing that all stars don't all come from one place, right? So there's a lot of places where you can, a lot of places where you can find talent. There are a lot of talented people out there. C, because of the exorbitant costs of law school, and just the amount of debt that people are graduating school with these days, some people may decide not to go to the more prestigious school because it comes with a bigger price tag. So some folks are going to schools that give them money. In fact, I can think of a few people who I worked with at some of the law firms where I led diversity and inclusion who chose law schools for financial reasons. And they didn't choose the top-tier law schools. They chose some other schools that gave them money, full rides in some instances, uh, full scholarships in some instances. They did extraordinarily well, well there and ended up at some of the most prestigious law firms in the country. So people are going to lots of different schools for various reasons, and there's just a lot of talent out there. And I think it's necessary for law firms to be more inclusive in their approach. And it's not so much of being creative. I don't think that's it because it's not that hard. It's just moving away from the mindset of, well, this is how we've always done it. And let's face it, that, that could be a very comfortable place to be, to sort of fall back on what you've always done because you know how things will work out in those instances. And for some folks, they may see it as a gamble to go to a different school. Whereas I don't see it that way. I see it as a way to expand your talent pool and your pipeline, especially because most of the top tier law firms are going after the same students at the same schools. And those schools aren't that diverse to begin with. So you're going after a very small pool and they're all competing with each other. So in that instance, the students have all the leverage, but the law firms don't see any difference, any significant difference, I should say, in their representation numbers year over year, because it's, it's, it's hard for that to happen uh, when you're doing the same thing over. 
Definitely. And, um, you know, not only can law firms do a better job, you know, recruiting diverse lawyers, but um, keeping and promoting them within their ranks. So um, you talk about some strategies like pairing junior associates and senior partners as mentors and sponsors. What are some other ways once a law firm has increased their diversity to really reduce bias and increase inclusion among their ranks and as partners? So actually, that's a great that's a great question. You know, in addition to sponsorship and mentorship programs, I think even before you get to that point, it's important for law firms, all of us in general, to accept the notion that unconscious bias is real. And that's the issue that's been around for a while. So people talk about it all the time, and so it's not a new issue. But when I write about this topic in the book, before getting to the need for law firms to have programs that pair talented junior lawyers with uh, influential senior lawyers, I talk about the pervasiveness of bias and that it impacts the relationship between pedestrians and drivers. And that's why you have higher fatality rates for African-American and Hispanic uh, male pedestrians than you have for other groups. Uh, that it also impacts the way professional basketball games are officiated because uh, bias you know, uh, referees tend to call fewer fouls on players of the same race as themselves. But interestingly enough, when the NBA made that information available to referees, they saw a difference in how games were officiated. I think the same thing applies with law firms. First, we have to raise awareness of the issue and do it in a way that's real for people. And so, you know, in the book, I reference a study that was done where uh, a memo was written by a fictional African-American third-year associate and a fictional white third-year associate. Same credentials, same pedigree, uh, same standing in the law firm is essentially the same person, just different race. And this memo was graded by actual law firm partners uh, across the country who decided to participate in the study. And what they found was that the same memo that was assessed by partners received very different grades when people were told that one memo was written by the African-American associate and the same memo was written by a white associate. And so this sort of drives home the point for me that, and I think for for other folks who are familiar with the study or have an opportunity to, to read the book, that the playing field isn't level. And unconscious bias is a nicer way of saying discrimination. And just because it may be unintended and we all have our own biases, the consequences of bias are still unfair and inequitable treatment of people. So in that situation, what do we do? We raise awareness, as I've mentioned. We identify where some of the issues are, where some of the problems are in our processes where bias can impact making sure that people have, all people have an equitable chance to succeed in the firm. And so that's looking at the work assignment processes, making sure that people are actually getting work commensurate with their skills and 
just as importantly that that work is being evaluated fairly. Access to influential partners, who's getting that access, because that's another thing that will determine someone standing in a firm and their career trajectory. Access to clients. And all of these things impact an attorney's career uh, and trajectory within the firm. So it's necessary to sort of pull back and think about all the places where bias could potentially impact our ability to make sure that we have the very best people doing the work for us, regardless of race, ethnicity, and gender. And what we have seen over the years is that, and what this, uh, that memo, the unconscious bias study that I referenced brings to light is that for years, centuries, for decades, for a very long time, regardless of how good someone may be or how good someone may perform, the field has been tilted against folks, particularly along uh, race issues. And that's unconscious bias. And that also reminds me of a, a quick story. Um, years ago when I attended an ABA conference and it was a panel discussion about diversity. And on that panel was the honorable Dennis Archer. Dennis Archer is in some respects could be described as the LeBron James of lawyers. Dennis Archer was the the first African-American to serve on the Supreme Court of Michigan. He was the former mayor of Detroit. He was the first African-American president of the American Bar Association. Mr. Archer did a lot of firsts. He accomplished a lot. So he was on the panel. And there was a discussion around, you know, how can we improve diversity and inclusion in the legal profession? Similar to the conversation we're having now. And someone stood up. And he asked Mr. Archer, he was very complimentary of him first before asking this question. And what he said as a part of his complimentary remarks to Mr. Archer was, this was a white person in the audience. I I assume a white male partner in the audience. He said, Mr. Archer, how could I find another you in my law firm? So essentially, how can I find a superstar black lawyer? for my firm. And I'm sitting in the audience, my reaction is, wow, that's such a high bar. That's unfair. That's like someone going around asking, how can I find the next LeBron James? Or how can I find the next Michael Jordan? Or how can I find the next Steph Curry? That's not fair. And so the reason why I mentioned that example is because, you know, not only is unconscious bias a thing that is working against a lot of people, but this notion that a black lawyer or a lawyer from an underrepresented group must be far and above better than everyone else who's ever come through this firm uh, in order to succeed. That's a high bar and it's an unfair bar. Whereas there are a lot of very good role players who played around who played with LeBron James and Michael Jordan and they had successful careers. And the same holds true in every aspect of life. Not all of us can be LeBron James, but a lot of us can be very good, solid performers and have successful careers. And if we hold people of underrepresented groups to a much higher standard 
than we hold everyone else, then we will be sitting here having conversations like the one we're having today around well, what can we do to promote diversity and inclusion in the law firm and law firms to make sure that bias, tradition, and other things like that are no longer impediments to progress. Definitely. And thank you for sharing that. I guess bringing up kind of that experience that you had sitting in the audience, um, do you have, you know, maybe a favorite story from your work in the legal field or, you know, something that uh, you witnessed that didn't come up in the book? Uh, That's a great question. Um, Favorite story. The one I just told right now was was a great story because that was an aha moment for me. But I think another story I have is I have seen in various contexts, in a law firm that I worked at in the past, where senior people have taken ownership in the careers of a junior lawyer from an underrepresented group and did so in a way that these partners actually sponsored folks. I mean, really sponsored people. And for a while, sponsorship was something that was a nice label that people started throwing around, similar to mentorship, but not fully appreciating what a sponsor does. And that is someone with the influence, a gravitas to vouch for someone else and give credibility to another person, a junior lawyer in this instance, when that person isn't in the room. And I've had the good fortune to actually see this happen to people. And I've seen people succeed uh, as a result of it. And it's not that folks were given any unfair advantages. That's not the case at all. What I witnessed is what happens for a lot of people all the time. And it has been happening. Most people who succeed and they are willing to admit this, most people who succeed have had sponsors. They've had someone who has opened doors for them, uh, facilitated introductions, made client connections, given people work to help them get started, made sure people got high-profile, high-visibility assignments that could propel their careers. This has gone on since the inception of the legal profession and in other professions. And so... I've seen that a couple of times. I will tell you also that I haven't seen it very often, but I've seen it. When I say I haven't seen it very often, that is for people in underrepresented groups. But I have seen it a few times, and I've seen it work very well. And I've seen people be intentional about it. We, I think we started off this conversation, and I said that you know I was in the military uh, years ago. That's how I, where I started my legal career. And... You know, when I wrote the book, I pulled on things from different parts of my life as content for this book, just different areas. And there's a quote in the book that resonates with me, and it's from Admiral Mike Mullen, who was a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, maybe 10 years ago or so. And he was a big proponent of diversity in the military. And he has this great saying where it is, we've been making generals for a long time, and we know how to do it. I'm paraphrasing here. But it's essentially, 
we've been getting people promoted to the highest level in the military for a long time. And that is, if you give people great work, give them access to great work, and they succeed at it, then they will get promoted. And the key words in that is giving people access, giving people the opportunity to really prove themselves. And so to come back full circle, that's what happened with the integration of Major League Baseball, with Branch Rickey as a leader who wanted to effectuate change. Knowing what he didn't know and becoming a student of the issue he wanted to solve, and recognizing that while Jackie Robinson was a phenomenal baseball player, it didn't matter if he, Jackie Robinson, wasn't appropriately sponsored by Branch Rickey. And that is Branch Rickey doing whatever he could to make sure Jackie Robinson got a fair shot in a very hostile environment under very tough circumstances in our country where it was highly unlikely for an African-American person in his position at that time to be treated fairly as the first African-American baseball player in the major leagues. And don't get me wrong, Brad Ricky did what he could to help Robinson, but Robinson still had a hard time. One of the reasons why I decided to include that story in the book is because Branch Rickey was unique. And there were lots of very talented African-American baseball players. And for those folks who are baseball aficionados, they would say that Jackie Robinson probably shouldn't have been the first African-American baseball player in the major leagues because there were so many other folks who were been playing a long time who were probably better than Jackie Robinson. But Branch Rickey was the only person who had the courage to integrate Major League Baseball and bring Jackie Robinson into it. So it's, for me, an indictment of everybody else and all the other owners lacked that courage to give someone a fair shot to play in Major League Baseball and do it in a way to where they would make sure that person was set up for success. Definitely. And, um, you know, when you just said um, giving someone a shot, I just started thinking about Hamilton, just, you know, in terms of that storyline too, being, you know, an immigrant and unrepresented person succeeding. But I just thought of the song, which gets stuck in my head anyways. Uh, uh, well, unfortunately, I haven't seen Hamilton, so I'm embarrassed to, <laughs> to admit that. Oh, I, I know uh, a lot of people who haven't seen it, but it's really the YouTube videos that, that get you hooked. But, um, (laughs) definitely, uh, there's a song called not throwing away my shot. And when you said that, it just cued the music (laughs) in my head here. But, um, so thank you for that. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss today? No, this has been great. I really appreciate uh, having the time to, to talk with you. You know, I guess the one thing that I would just put out there is that, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, the integration of Major League Baseball, what law firms could do differently to recruit, retain, and develop people, and what law schools could do differently. There's a big part, there's a part of the book that also calls out the fact that there are some institutional barriers that are beyond the control of law firms. And that's where I really get into education and the history behind public education and how it was created, you know, 
about 200 years ago to benefit the sons of wealthy white landowners in that girls could only be educated to the extent that it would make them good wives and mothers, and that was it. And to even think about educating a black or brown person was was unfathomable. And just sort of talking about sort of the how laws were put in place to systematically undereducate black folks and the role that lawyers played in creating and carrying out those laws. And then on the reverse of that is the role that lawyers played to dismantle those laws and break them down and to make us help us get to a, a better union. But a part of that, why I included those, there are two chapters in the book that deal with this issue. Why I included that, those chapters in the book is because we're still dealing with the legacy of that inequality today. And I think that's why we're seeing a lack of diversity in some of our institutions of higher education, because our country's 240 plus years old. And for the vast majority of our country's history, we were not set up to where people should be treated equitably. And we've always been fighting at this. And that's one of the great things about our country is that courageous people have risked, in some instances, everything for the benefit of all of us. And we're still sort of working at that. And so, you know, I included that in those chapters in the book because it also calls out the importance of this profession that we're talking about, of lawyers and lawyering and what attorneys can do to continue to make our country better. So I just wanted to to mention that. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to drop that one last tidbit in there as a part of our discussion today. Definitely. And thank you so much. Where can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work? Sure. So feel free to email me at imo.kenneth at gmail.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. Again, my name is Kenneth Emo, I-M-O. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter. And I, I believe my Twitter handle is Kenneth Emo. It's pretty straightforward. But you can find me online. Happy to talk, take questions. I'm pretty accessible. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today and, um, you know, just providing really educational, necessary, and heartfelt perspectives on all this. So thank you. Listeners, if you'd like to purchase Fix It, you can do so at the ABA web store. You can go to AmericanBar.org slash products. That's AmericanBar.org slash products. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.